0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Duty to Report. This is your host and producer, Yosko Senov. Thank you for following and thank you for being here. In today's episode, we continue the second part of our interview with current Correctional Officer Carmen, who is a woman of color, a woman with over 36 years of public service experience, and a woman who is extremely passionate about making a difference in her workplace. Now, in our last episode, she talked in detail about her passion for helping her colleagues with getting the mental health support they needed, as she felt it's her duty to help navigate staff especially staff that are brand new in the workplace, who are battling trauma. And she does this by helping them get the help that they need, the time off that they need, and get the resources that they need. She also identified her commitment to anti-racism in the Ontario Public Service, in corrections in particular, and why she is speaking out now. She has made it clear that she is coming from a perspective of wanting to share her experiences so others know just how difficult dealing with racism in this workplace is, and just how much trauma and additional stress it can cause on those who are experiencing it. Now in this episode, we're going to dive deeper into her experiences of racism and discrimination in her workplace as she gives us specific examples of what she has had to endure, what it was like to report it, what the outcome of reporting it was, and just how the process has failed her and many others who come forward in our Ontario jail system. She bravely and openly shares the details of these experiences and the pain she has endured in hopes that she can help be a part of real, on-the-ground change, and that those listening will understand the brutal reality of the effects of racism, the difficulties of reporting it in this particular subculture, and the failures of this system to adequately address and support those abused who actually do come forward. Now, here is part two of her sharing her personal experiences. Carmen, what would you say has been your breaking point in corrections? And what I mean by that is like that one event or several events that made you feel, for lack of a better word, like betrayed or hurt by your employer uh, to the point that you feel like you've had to speak out. Was it that specific racism incident that we had spoken about before? Or was it a multitude of issues that have just piled on over the years?
1: That was the beginning of the breaking points.
0: You're talking about that specific incident then? That was the... That was a catalyst for everything?
1: Yeah. It seemed like once that happened and I launched the complaint and it went right to the deputy minister's office and it became, you know, circulated. Oh, like, don't piss her off. You know, she's whistleblower. Right. You know what I mean? Then Mm -hmm. I really noticed things happening.
0: Things happening in the sense like you were targeted or people just kind of pulled away. You were even more targeted.
1: No, I think I was more targeted.
0: Wow. so can you just describe that incident just for the public? Like what it is that happened that, that triggered you that started the whole thing for you?
1: So it was black history month. It was in, in February. Right. Uh, I was part of cure and diversity group. And we always put on a, a black history celebration. Um. So it was in that month. I had recently returned to work after a car accident. Mm-hmm. So, I was on special, like modified duties. So I was working in the reception area and that's at the front at the main entrance where, you know, lawyers, visitors, inmates picking up their property. Okay. Um, people coming in from other institutions for staff training. And that was a a group of bailiffs had come in and they were from all over the province. Were they dropping so off an offender
0: in- at that point or they were just coming in for training?
1: Nope. They were coming in for training. Okay. So, there was a training class being held in the institution. And because they're from other institutions, they don't know their way around. Right. So, we gladly escort them. Uh, The whole group had gone down and there was a straggler. He came Uh late. And, I mean, he'd come from uh, Sudbury. Mm -hmm. So, he was late. Uh, He came up to the window and he said, yeah, I'm here for uh, the... Use of force training with the bailiffs. I said, oh, okay. Uh, You don't know where you're going, do you? Because the the group's already gone down. I'll get you an escort. So I said, just take a seat. I called down there. I wasn't paying attention to whose voice it was. I said, "Uh, you've got a straggler. He needs to get to the classroom. Can someone come and escort him? Yep, no problem. Uh, Hung up the phone. So it was a quiet, but it was, you know, everybody had been taken care of in the lobby. Right. I said, uh, I said to my partner who was a native female, I said, I'm just going to go to stores, pick up my uniform or whatever they have for me. I'll be back. So I was gone maybe 15 minutes. I come back with my box of goods and I noticed the guy still sitting there. So I went, Oh, how come he's still sitting there? Didn't somebody come and get him? Like, class is underway and she was just oblivious oh i i I didn't notice so i tapped on the window called him up and i said what are you waiting for like and he goes i don't know i said didn't Mm -hmm. somebody come up and to escort you no i said oh okay hang on right there let me call again so i picked up the phone called down and i said i called ages ago For someone to escort this guy to the classroom. Oh, okay. Be right up. Click. Okay. So officer came up and these were two older officers. I didn't realize they knew each other from back in the day. Okay. I didn't know that connection. So when the one officer opened the door for him and he said, Oh yeah, come on buddy. What's what's going on? And he turned to me and pointed and he said, That fucking nigger made me wait. Wow. And I looked over at my partner, who was native. I went, did you just hear what I heard?
0: Wow. Okay.
1: (laughs) And she went, "Uh," her her mouth was just hanging open. And then two couple more steps, he was behind. He passed our booth thinking that he was out of our earshot. And he said, those useless bunch of cunts. Wow. And I went, I don't believe this. This is, I do well, not. So I—that's somebody That's somebody that's been allowed news to, news
0: to get away with saying stuff like that in an open, in an open area within an institution, in a government building as a law a enforcement public, officer.
1: In a public lobby, said that oh. out loud.
0: And that could, Whether there could be visitors there. There could be lawyers and everybody would hear that.
1: Yep. Offenders, families. Of- Anybody yep.
0: could be there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I thought like th- my first thing was how embarrassing. Right. <laughs> you how know, Embarrassing
0: and- for, for corrections as a whole and how embarrassing yep. to try to humiliate you as well.
1: And for the people in the lobby, they didn't know what True. to say.
0: Oh, wow. Right? So there was I- a lot of other people that actually heard that as well. Even
1: members of the public. There was members of the public that heard. it. Wow. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was so consumed in this comment that, you know, I was oblivious to who exactly heard it. And, right. and you know, I did glance for expressions and that, but it was, my focus was, ah, no, not acceptable. Like, Shock. my first yeah. was to go off, go after him and say, ah, excuse me, mm-hmm. not acceptable.
0: Now, you didn't get a chance to talk to him directly?
1: Well, by the time I had come out of the booth, he was down the hall. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he was face to face with the other guy that was escorting him. Mm -hmm. And he was just ranting, ranting. So from the reception area through the building to the classroom, sat down in the classroom and was still muttering slurs. And I got a phone call from several people who passed him in the hall and from the instructor asking me, What in the hell did I say to piss this guy off so much?
0: As if there's any justification to begin with, as if that makes it okay.
1: Yeah. So by the way he was carrying on and using that slur, they thought I must have done something horribly rude or, you know, and and they know me. They know it wasn't like me. So that's why the phone was ringing off the hook. What did I say? What did I do? Am I having a bad day? What is my problem today? And so I'm, at
0: this point, so clearly you would have reported this, right? You didn't get a chance to talk to him directly, call him on it, but you were able to because there was other colleagues that had seen it. So you reported it, if I remember correctly.
1: Yes. So when people started phoning me and asking me what I've done, and I said, like, what? what's going on? And the instructor said he hasn't shut up since he sat down in the classroom. He is so angry. Mm-hmm. And he's dropping like that's how they knew it was me because
0: wow, there's only me. (laughs) He's dropping the N word over and over in the classroom, in front of other officers, in front of managers, in front of other, in front of train in a training in a government facility on top of the public.
1: Yeah. So now you have to answer to why you're being
0: called racial slurs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They wanted to know what I did to upset this guy, and I'm thinking. I did nothing. I See, made this him is a thing,
0: right? Like when the public I made him wait thinks, for an
1: escort. <laughs> when the public
0: talks about you know all oh, racism and law enforcement, now we're not saying everybody's racist, of course, across law enforcement or the entire correctional facility. Every officer, every white officer is racist. You can have racism from both sides. Let's make that very clear too. You can have yeah racism and discrimination from different colors. It's not just white on black. It's everybody can be racist and discriminatory, right? But mm-hmm. but generally speaking, you know. It's just, it's unbelievable. Like, you know, the public thinks all these things about law enforcement has, has a certain perception of us, has a perception that none of this would ever happen. If, if your own staff are being abused by your own staff openly, they're being called Mm -hmm. racial slurs, being called the N word in front of management and other staff and training and in the hallway, then what is that officer doing to actual members of the public and to offenders? Yeah. And there's no cameras. There's no, there's no audio in most places. There's no uh, body cameras, right? You have no idea how they're abusing them. You have no idea what rights they're taking away. If they're willing to abuse their very own, what would mm-hmm. they do
1: to somebody they don't even know that is Black? Because And, and that was another thing that was brought to my attention that mm-hmm. he has a history of this kind of behavior. This was the third... Um, mine was the third... Um,
0: Like investigation?
1: Serious investigation, yes. So I wasn't allowed to speak to the person because it was gag ordered on the settlement. Mm -hmm. But he had called one of his own bailiffs, fellow bailiffs, some racial slurs and been convicted and had a gag order on the settlement.
0: Wow. Unbelievable. So, But still continued to work.
1: And was still, yeah. So mine being the third, he should have been fired.
0: Uh, how long ago was this approximately?
1: This was a few years back. So Just a
0: couple of years ago. Yeah. You're talking just now, just a couple of years ago. This is not in the 90s early 2000s. No,
1: no, this is in the this century. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow. Do you think that in let's say it was in in the late 2010s, 2015? Would mm-hmm. you be able to call anybody else a racial slur at any other workplace with all management, all staff hearing it and continue to work? Like, can you can you think of one other field of work where you could do that and still have your job? No, I I can't think of one. You know, I, no. I honestly can't think of anywhere where you could actually get away with doing that.
1: And that was one of my reasons for speaking out is like, no, that shouldn't be.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially in like, a government it, It goes against everything that you signed up for, for wanting to protect that little girl, for wanting to be there for other for other people, for wanting to be that person of color. It's Mm -hmm. it's so damaging to your own dignity. I mean, this uh, you know honestly, I actually didn't know when this happened. I assumed that this happened a long time ago. To be honest with you, I didn't realize that this was only a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So the fact that that's happened, you know, thirty years after you've you've done so much public service and so much good and actually you know served the public. And to top it off, this is what you get. Yeah. And the pain of people there's two things the pain of your own colleagues that you actually depend on, that you actually have relationships and friends with, and you expect that they mm-hmm. would have your back and they don't. And, and they a, don't. And they yeah. don't. And there's also a pain of institutional betrayal where you expect that your government with all these fancy policies and anti racism memos to actually have your back and make right on this and they don't. And that's and very that- hurtful.
1: That was one of the first times I had used the WDHP uh, mm-hmm. policy.
0: I just want to explain WDHP. I explained this in Elena's interview as well. It's workplace discrimination harassment policy. So if you have any issues in government, it's also uh, applied in the private sector as well. If you have any issues with workplace issues, staff on staff or management with staff, uh, discrimination or harassment or racist slurs, things of that sort, then you're supposed to call an investigator, report it. They would document it. And then they deal with management and they're supposed to investigate and hold somebody accountable. Now you reported it, Carmen, to WDHP. Yes. And what was the finding?
1: So they had an independent investigator come in who interviewed and he was, you know, like gobsmacked the whole interview. He just could not believe what I was saying it was real. Right. Um, the superintendent was the one who escorted him out to his vehicle based on my complaint. He had the security manager bring him up to the superintendent's office and the superintendent talked to him and walked him out of the building. Um, And they said like, you do not return to these through these doors ever again. You go through the back gate um, while this investigation goes on. The investigation fell onto his own boss for investigation. She did some fact finding, Mm -hmm. his own boss. Now, my understanding is it should be to the next. um, Somebody that's unbiased,
0: you mean? Somebody that's a third party?
1: Yeah. Right. So there should have been another manager of the offender transport unit.
0: Well, this is the problem with the WDHP, right? The WDHP advisors uh, take in all the information and then hand yeah. it over to their direct manager. Right. Which is supposed to deal with them in a direct management action, which can be anything. It can be a slap on the wrist. It could just be a conversation, yeah. and you never even know. You don't even find and out. And they
1: don't, and that's what they said, they don't have to disclose the management action, just that management action has been taken. Right. And they informed me that he pled guilty. To making an inappropriate comment, as in those useless bunch of cunts. But not to However, the racial slur. He would not admit to a racial slur because it would have got him fired.
0: And how long did that investigation take? And did anybody else support you or come forward?
1: The people they interviewed, so the officer that was with him denied hearing any such comment. And that's when I found out, well, you really expect him to turn his body in? Yeah. I asked for the DVD footage of them standing in front of the door with him red-faced and pointing to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, it won't play on these computers. (laughs) It's not not formatted. And my representative had asked for the footage to be released to the union, and they refused her.
0: They refuse to actually release it. Okay.
1: Yeah. It doesn't matter if there's audio because that's it. They tried to say there's no audio anyway.
0: Well, that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah, Obviously,
1: red face. Yeah. And he's pointing at me as his lips are moving, making that
0: slur. Wouldn't you want to, as management, actually get to the bottom of that and not have racist employees? Wouldn't you want to actually find out? And pull that up yourself rather than putting the onus on you and in a sense, almost gaslighting you, an employer or HR in general, any management should want to find out, like, is this allegation serious? Yes, it is. Okay. Is it true? Let's find out. Let's look, let's look through the video. Let's file through uh, witnesses. Let's, let's go through the story. Let's look through the incident report. And if it matches, then you hold people accountable
1: especially when there's a history that they're aware of. Right. And, wow. and Bill 168 says, you know, if there's a history, it must be disclosed.
0: Right. Right.
1: You must disclose that, that there's a history of this behavior.
0: So when you reported all this through WDHP, the finding was what? Like, did they, they actually let anybody ever held, be held accountable? Was anybody apologetic? What, what did you get out of actually reporting it? And how long did it
1: take? Um, it took the better part of a year. Um, and I think by the time the final outcome, I was told he was on vacation. They tried to say that he had been suspended. He had received a couple of days suspension. But the talk around town was, no, he took some vacation time. And you wouldn't even know. So they covered up the yeah. fact that somebody was lying because was he on vacation or was he suspended? They didn't have to disclose the management. They don't have to disclose, they
0: they have to have to disclose anything about you. And they don't even, they're not even willing to give you the actual video to substantiate and support your case. Right. that That's unbelievable. Honestly, just even listening to that. Um, and that took a full year, which I think people listening will be like, How does it take a full year to investigate somebody being called the N-word at work with all those witnesses? Now, can you just talk about the subculture of corrections, that whole don't snitch, no rat culture and, you know, the code of silence and what that is? And like, how prevalent would you say it is?
1: Oh, it's it's daily. It's a daily code. You don't rat. And when I started, there was no written trail. Of, of um, acts to go to. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't this Bill once, it, there wasn't any kind of a WDHP real policy in effect. You had a beef, a problem, a complaint. You took it out to the parking lot.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey,
1: I didn't like that you called me that. You know, let's go duke it out. We shake hands and we come back in. Okay. And then it happens again, and you do it, you go back out to the parking lot. And if you don't like the outcome, well, then I slash your tires. Wow. And you're not surprised, and you go get your tires fixed. There was no paper trail. That's how things were done. Off the record, oh, well, I think he got his tire slashed because she was pissed. Do the math. But then they come in with these fancy committees and bills and, and, Okay, policies. Let's, yeah. let's hold people accountable. Let's use this. All that does is label you a rat, a whistleblower.
0: Because they're setting you up for failure in this culture because they haven't changed the actual cultural issues to begin right. with. But they've put policies that go against the actual cultural norms. If you're not supposed to snitch on each other, you're not supposed to rat out on a colleague, which to me has never made sense because it's one thing to have somebody's back, you know, with certain things, but it's a whole nother thing to allow your colleague to be sexually assaulted, harassed, to be racially abused, to sit there and watch that. I mean, that to me, that goes against everything that I signed up for in law enforcement, right? To protect and serve. If I can't even protect and serve my own colleagues, then how am I going to protect and serve the public? You know, it, it just goes against everything that I believe in personally. And I've never understood the whole don't snitch, don't rat subculture. And this is why you have, you know, women being abused in law enforcement. We see what's going on with the military and people coming forward at the highest level of, of the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. We see this, this, this paramilitary subculture and um, this code of silence. But I really, really think that people have no idea how strong that, that you know, that pressure for you to conform and have to fit in this, how, how, how it exists and how strong it actually is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not like any other job, right?
1: No, it's they wouldn't get away with the same level of blatant disrespect Mm -hmm. in any other job. Now, how did it make
0: you feel, Carmen? Like from the sounds of it, would you say that you got justice and accountability for reporting and putting in the WHP and being called a racial slur? Like, did you ever feel like you were made whole? No, not at all.
1: No, I felt like that wasted. It consumed me. Right. And it wasted an entire better part of a year. Of your watching life. Watching my P's and Q's, watching my back while this played out.
0: So you're saying while you reported this, you were actually targeted that much more?
1: Things. There was things happening that I thought. Uh, does this guy have friends? Right. Okay. Do people think that I'm a liar? You know, do I have to worry about my tires being slashed?
0: Now, I think uh, at one point you told me that you were you received a day vacation or something along those lines, like for the entire situation, which, which is incredibly, just disheartening and almost comical. Like you get a day of vacation for being called a racial slur, if if I remember that correctly,
1: and you're partly right when this came up for uh, what do you call it? Stage two, where you sit in the boardroom and everybody discusses, right. They threw another grievance on the table that I had. And it was a manager who I don't, I don't know if it was, I, I can't say directly because of this, event that she was behaving this way i think she was just an idiot and behaving that way to a lot of people but i had a grievance against this manager and what they did was they brought that grievance forward and combined the two
0: mhm right so they can deal with both at the same time
1: so what what we'll do is rather than admitting any guilt let's sign off on these two and we'll give you this that's the best you're going to get
0: wow well. That's unbelievable. So that
1: was the settlement for two grievances.
0: Now, how do you think this makes other people of color, other women who are in these same type of situations when they're watching it from the sideline? Right. They see, OK, she's reported this. She took a stand for herself, but got nothing out of it. What do you think it does for other minority staff in particular in corrections?
1: Uh, it's very disillusioned. They get disillusioned. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> well, I guess I won't be using that policy. That's how it worked for you.
0: Right. How's that
1: going to work for me?
0: Totally. It's like, well, I saw her getting abused, so why would I do that?
1: Yeah. Because despite what they said about not talking about it, I discouraged people from using that policy. Right. I said, I will never use that again. That's right. I will resort to my own tactics to solve a situation. But that will be before I ever touch that policy again. It's a complete waste of time, waste of money and waste of manpower.
0: And what it does is more than anything, it actually traumatizes people. It re-victimizes the actual victim in these situations. And,
1: yeah, I felt victimized over and over again.
0: Do you think that it's almost setting an example of the management and the government really doesn't care if you're racially abused at work? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. You're that on your felt own. Nobody cared. Nobody Good luck. Cared. Report
0: it to WDHP. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. I can and definitely. And that's what relate.
1: they do. They, they shuffle cabinet. So the manager of the offender transfer moved, moved on, promoted, most likely promoted. Uh, superintendent mm, somewhere else gone. Not, not in any relation to this, but.
2: Right.
0: Right.
1: Anybody having anything to do with that? was now totally removed
0: like how has the government or corrections in general how do they deal with these people that are abusive racist people that are working in law enforcement do you feel like if they're not holding them accountable what are they doing are they promoting them are they hiding them are they moving them around the province or what what do you think is like their strategy like
1: most times it's a promotion so after this incident um I had an incident with a manager and I thought instead of WDHP, I went with human rights. Mm
0: -hmm. I put in
1: a human rights complaint. They moved him to Toronto South, promoted him. Human rights says, well, there's not really much grounds. He's gone. He's no longer here. So you really don't have any foundation any basis for this so you know going forward that's the end of it
2: right right
1: and the minute it was the end of it he was promoted and returned and became my boss
0: this other manager mm-hmm. came back after all of this stuff everything was over actually got moved back to the same facility and became your manager
1: and became my manager so i left the staff training department.
0: Wow. And do you think that's all strategic? They know when human rights complaints are, they know how long they last, and they know that once it's done, they're just going to move them back?
1: He could not get promoted while there was a human rights uh, active case on his file. So he could not get promoted. So they put him in an acting position, moved him out of the building, let the human rights work its magic. And as soon as they dropped it, they gave him a promotion to return.
0: That's unbelievable. Yeah. He
1: re- he but the story that you the-
0: hear from a lot of staff, you know, he- what, he- what does that do when the same people that are abusing, the same management that are abusing their own staff or the same officers that are abusing their own officers get promoted and get even better positions, right? And yeah. what does that do? I would say that it kills morale. It kills a level of trust. It betrays yeah. the staff. And it's a complete contradiction of, like, the policies and the things that, you know, on one end, they have, they're saying, this is what's going to happen, and here's how people are going to be held accountable, especially from corrections training. They tell you from day one, you know, all these things are not allowed, human rights violations are not allowed, and all this stuff. But then when it happens, so blatantly in your face, and nothing happens about it, like you said, I think disillusion is the perfect way, but also a form of institutional betrayal. Like, you yeah. feel betrayed that how can management actually allow this to continue and I think it literally kills your spirit. It kills your spirit, especially as a colored person or as a woman or anybody who's already marginalized and already like, I, um, you know, I, I think in the YouTube video, you had said that you felt like you had to try, try to fit in and you had to work that much harder to try to fit in with people. It's already hard enough. And then you add all this on top of it and it makes it that much more difficult.
1: And it's, it's so discouraging that after 30, 30- going on 36 years now i have no desire to move up when no. i see what's above my rank that's not me i am not putting on a game face and playing those games this is what i stand for and i will keep my morals
0: at all when, costs when you say that carmen you're saying that you don't believe like that the leadership itself is being promoted on the basis of effective leadership, good quality, people with character, people who take a stand. Is that kind of what you're referring to? Or you think that it's more politics? It's more
2: Mm -hmm. um,
0: people that kind of suck up to people uh, trying to fit in. um, Don't really understand the nature of the job and aren't there to support people. Right. It's more about them than it is about the actual culture and fixing the issue. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been my experience. They're not putting
1: someone in there because They're going to stamp out this. They're not going to tolerate this. They're going to nip this in the bud. They're a people person. Mm -hmm. But they're promoted. They have no backbone. And when you go to them and say, well, this happened. It's the attitude is tell someone who cares.
0: That's absolutely it. I've told 16 managers. I couldn't believe it. I was reporting to 16 different managers and nobody cared.
1: And nobody cares.
0: And nobody cared. And even the minister and the anti-racism minister, who, by the way, was Black, didn't even respond to the actual emails. And when you're talking about these people that are getting promoted in these positions of power that don't have experience and don't feel qualified themselves, an interesting conversation I had not too long ago with the regional director for Corrections, uh, who recently started in Corrections, actually told me that he himself was surprised that he even got the interview and that he even got the job. So... <laughs> when you hear that level of you know <laughs> unsureness about themselves it's uh it just makes you think like there's no relationship there's no relatability to what, what's actually going on on the ground and for me what i've seen is a lot of pr stunts a lot of a lot of policies a lot of memos tons and tons of emails right coming out mm-hmm. what do you think about the fact that you know Corrections, the Ontario government in particular, says that, okay, we're a top 100 diversity employer. Um, You see all these, I'm sure the lunchrooms at Maplehurst are flooded with anti-racism, human rights posters, um, all these things. So from the outside to other government staff who have never worked in corrections or to members of the public or to anybody who doesn't know anything about this, it sounds picture perfect, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, it's the government of Ontario. They They don't align. It's a complete contradiction. It's almost a betrayal mm-hmm. to the policies. Yeah. I'm it's curious, almost... like, how seeing these posters and flyers for you personally makes you feel?
1: Like they're spending money to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I'm waiting to see these posters come out. Is there phone numbers on there? Who are you calling? Mm. Where Where are these posters leading you with your complaints
0: that's right there's no actual system to address the actual issues and that's the problem
1: so it's a new poster i can vouch for that it's new because i just put my face on it so i know it's new but what else is new
0: now would you say that this is almost a slap in the face and i'm not referring to just the poster you've done that you were part of which i commend you for being a part of something trying to make change but all the posters I'm talking about from the McKinnon days to now in the, do you think this is a slap in the face of minorities who have actually suffered real egregious abuse in the workplace to post these almost self promoting government posters by the employer?
1: I find that they're of, how do I put it? But they're for the promotion of the government's position, right? It's for them to toot their own horn saying, Look what we're doing.
0: But it's not being
1: done on the ground. But behind the poster, what's changed? Right. I think they're setting themselves up because you're going to put all these posters up and say, this is what we're about. And people are going to start holding them accountable. That's, that's what it's going to trigger. It's going to say, oh, I can go that route.
0: Oh, but it, be- but it becomes very easy to kind of brush them off as well, right? And just kind of ignore yeah. them. And then hopefully they just go away.
1: That's what I want to see. What's going to change? Do you think putting up posters is going to change things? Well, let's see.
0: So we talked about racism towards you in particular, which was pretty egregious and out in the public, which is shocking. Have you ever seen or heard of any of that towards your colleagues or towards, I know you had mentioned offenders uh, at previous times, but have you ever been... Uh, witness or have experienced any staff on staff racial slurs or sexual harassment or things like that. And I'm just wondering, like, it's not just you. Am I correct to say that there's other people that have been abused in this workplace?
1: Yes. 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 And yeah. I have been partied. Um, um, I had a colleague, I think she, yeah, she's now a man manager at Lindsay but okay. as a colleague um. We were both under some abuse and harassment by a white female officer.
0: How prevalent would you say these kind of issues, like in general, how like how prevalent would you say it is? And like, what's a word that you would use to describe the culture and corrections like from when you began to where it is today? Has anything even changed or would you describe it as just a toxic or poison work environment in general?
1: It's toxic, it's poisoned, and it's intensified.
0: It's actually worse, you would say? Yeah. Than when you started? Yeah. That's really shocking to me to actually hear that. Wow.
1: It, it's worse because there's more fight back. From when management. I started, when I started, you tolerated it. You tolerated it. You put up with it. You right. didn't complain. Well, now they put the word out, let's complain. Right. And it's become more toxic and more volatile
0: because the onus is on you and there's, you're the one pushing to fight for yourself. Yeah. But you're not getting justice. And then you
1: get shit on for speaking out.
0: Right. That's very interesting. So it's almost like there was less trauma from the whole issue to have just been called a racial slur, to know how to deal with it in the parking lot, to know to just go home and let it go. Than to actually go through all these processes to continue to re-victimize, re-abuse people only to get no justice. Right. Wow, that is so interesting, even though it was very in your face and very prevalent at that time. What's really awful about this whole thing is that not only is it intensified like you're describing, but the offenders have intensified as well. The type of mm-hmm. offenders you're getting, the mental health and the gangs, the things that you're dealing with have intensified. So it's become, yeah. so it sounds like it's that much more stressful of an actual career, plus that much more stressful with human rights violations and other issues within within the actual facility, staff on staff and staff with management.
1: Yeah, and and I can reflect like right right up to recently November when I was assaulted. Mm-hmm. I was constantly working alone. I complained for three straight years, every month when the health and safety committee came on a tour three years of every month saying, when am I going to get a blue button down this end of the hall? Three years of written documentation saying I've requested a blue button down my end of the hall because I can't rely on staff to back me up when I need it. You know, they come in with this attitude that, Oh, that's your job. This is mine. I don't okay. have to do that. Okay. That's helping you. So the attitude is very you. different
0: with newer staff.
1: Very different. Wow. Okay. Plus the staff in the area on the time, lots of young staff. I wouldn't say overworked, but more involved with standing around the desk chatting mm-hmm. than helping me. Mm-hmm. And it was only that the, I caught the attention of the, the fella in the control module, right? Because I couldn't get to the blue button. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I came under assault And it was a push and shove match, me trying to restrain this. And it was mental health. Like, do you want to charge the inmate?
0: A much bigger offender. And this is just in November of last year.
1: This is November of last year. Well, why would I want to charge him? He has mental health issues. And I asked the staff to escort him over for me. And they didn't.
0: So you were one-on-one with him? or
1: Yeah. So I had five inmates in my bullpen secured and i had one in the video room when someone says oh here's your guy dropped him off at the end of the hall and i said no no hold on i got a guy in here just just hold on with him i gotta go and i said when you're this was the psychiatric team of officers i said when you're done with that guy have the unit staff bring him back to video for me radio me when he's on the way Right. And what I do is I clear the room. He goes directly in, does his appearance, and then they take him back. Now, this offender usually comes back in cuffs with two officers. Oh, wow. Okay. And occasionally, I have a spit hood ready. So this was the psychiatrist who was, uh, this was the psych- psychiatrist escort. And they said, we're finished with him. Here's your guy. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, like, I always have assistance with this guy. So, I, you know, I couldn't say in the presence of the inmate, oh, no, I don't want to be alone with him. So I said, okay, just hold on to him for a minute while I secure this guy. So I put this guy in a room, took the mental health guy in, and the officer left. As soon as the inmate walked towards me, she left. So I put him in the room. One of the guys in the bullpen made a wisecrack and set him off. Hmm. So he intended to bulldoze me, get into the room, and start a fight.
0: Okay, gotcha. And you're you're in the middle.
1: So I blocked the room. And I couldn't get to the blue button. And I couldn't talk on the radio while both hands are involved. (laughs) Right. Trying to keep the guy from breaking into the room. Right, of course. Yeah. So... We were in a pushing and shoving and shouting. I was shouting at him. And And through him
0: pushing through through you is how you actually hurt your shoulder? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I was trying to push him back from the door. And then uh, I pushed him all the way down a hall into the rotunda area. And when I got to the desk area, I kind of stopped to take a breath. And he had become a little more compliant. Right. And the the group of staff standing around the desk, the officer's desk, they're looking like, and and someone said, Oh, he pissed her off. Oh, she mad. Right. But none of them step forward to say, Do you need help?
0: Now, this makes me think of like how the these staff on staff issues, right, with mm-hmm. with each other, inside corrections. Do you think that they affect offenders or rehabilitation efforts? And like, could you explain how? I'm just, I'm I'm coming oh. to that question because, you know, you're talking about mental health and I think the public in general has no idea how much mental health is in, you know, our Ontario correctional systems and how many offenders suffer with severe mental health like schizophrenia and bipolar and personality disorders and all kinds of stuff, right? And oftentimes off their meds and uh, all type of things and addictions and withdrawals. And I just want to know, like, how do you think that these staff on staff issues actually end up affecting those those offenders, especially the ones that are most vulnerable?
1: Because they see the lack of um teamwork.
0: Mm. So the offenders they, see that.
1: The offenders see, like, oh, no one's coming to your help.
0: No one's mm, gonna help you. Okay.
1: They they get to see who you are. So there's the one officer, I mean, she's been um how do i put it a lot of the inmates think nothing but she's nothing but a bitch or a lazy cow Mm. like she's always in confrontation with inmates Mm -hmm. and i did hear another officer saying she said to another officer this was a, a a different day After I had my incident, I heard her say to another officer, you're going to take that comment back now? You're going to change your mind and uh, apologize for calling me a racist? Mm -hmm. And I kind of didn't know what it was all about. Wow. But I gather that somebody had called her on a racist comment or something.
0: Yep. I've seen things like that in my experience, too.
1: As a I matter of fact,
0: on, on one of my units, there was a bunch of uh, offenders that actually put together kind of almost like, um, like, a, like um, they all signed a piece of paper, right? Like the entire unit, basically um, mm-hmm. just stating that, you know, this officer uh, called somebody the N word and, you know, there's been racial issues on that unit. And that was handed over to the officers. I know for a fact that we're working in the unit and then that was handed over to management. And next thing I know, I see it in the garbage. So (laughs) I know that I know very well that, um, you know, kind of like how things are, how things are dealt with, because we know that a lot of people do make claims of racism and offenders do, uh, do make up stuff quite often. Right. And they're there to manipulate as well. And we, we know that side of the game, but at the same time, you still have to take things serious and at least investigate. But you know, when nothing is documented, Mm -hmm. then, then there's usually something going on in my opinion. Now, do you feel that these workplace issues, so what I'm referring to, so like, for example, there's there's bullying and harassment issues. There's, there's WDHPs. What happens when there's WDHPs? They usually end up, um, people end up on sick leaves. People end up taking off extra sick time. What happens? Can you just explain to the public like how all of these staff-on-staff issues are not just staff-on-staff issues. They actually end up affecting family members that want to come in for visits, but oftentimes there's lockdowns Oftentimes, we don't have enough staff. Just kind of from that perspective, how does it all trickle down?
1: So now visits have to be done by appointment. So they call, make an appointment. Mm -hmm. Well, I book appointments. Another team cancels appointments. So if there's a lockdown or any kind of uh, situation or isolation wing, it's a different group. So when they call, your visit's canceled. Oh, well, can you book, book me in for, no, you have to call back, but it takes me three days to get through to that lady.
2: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: that's okay. That's, that's not my problem. You know, and when they do get through to me, like they cancel my visit, why couldn't they book me, rebook me? So by the time they get through to me and they go to book a visit, it's full.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you think all of this has a trickle down effect all the way to the offenders, especially ones with mental health and the most vulnerable oh, yeah. ones? Yeah. Yeah. Because people are not yeah. getting their visits and they're not getting the the rehab focused things that they're supposed to be getting,
2: mm-hmm.
0: so like with all these WDHPs and sick leaves and things like that. I'm just yeah. wondering. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Do you do you see it uh, affecting the actual, you know, on the ground issues when it comes to offenders, yeah. families, visitors? Yeah, because
1: people don't want to come to work. Right. We're always short stuffed. Okay. We're getting, you know, like. Why? Why don't you people come to work? You make good money, right? But they're not aware of what we're dealing with.
0: They're not aware of the safety they're issues. They're not aware of the yeah. safety issues, right. right?
1: You know, and if if I'm short staffed and I can't get help and I'm going to get assaulted, I'm doing this job because I got assaulted and can't work my job, right? And, and whose fault is that?
0: Exactly, yeah, and you're the one that has to deal with that at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Right. And and because we're always running below those, what we call red line, mm-hmm. and they still expect you to do things. Mm-hmm. So to get everything if, done, too. If you're casual or you're a rookie, you may be full-time, but you're a rookie, and they lean on you. Okay, l- let's get it done. But, but Sergeant, we're short. That's okay. Make it happen. So they bend, and they cut corners, and they take these shortcuts. Right. Which gets people hurt.
0: But it also hurts offenders and families in some way as well, right? Because of the lockdowns yeah. and the and the constant tension that it creates on units.
1: Yeah. So I mean, to me, you know, do you want to charge this inmate? Well, why would I do that? Right. He's got enough on his plate right now. He's got mental health issues. He's not on his medication. What good is it to drag him now, make a criminal out of the only reason he's here because of mental health issues? Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a crime what he did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you want me to make a criminal act out of his mental health.
0: And just keep that revolving door going. And you
1: want to tie me up on my time off to come to court. Right. Not doing it. You take the guy to beg for a day. He's back on my very same unit the next day. What's that? Because you don't have room to keep him. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So would you say the best strategy is to learn how to manage the offenders and deal with them and and build relationships more than anything?
1: Yeah. And there's a code among inmates, too. You don't talk to the guards. You Mm -hmm. don't socialize. You don't act friendly with the guards.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, there was a situation in the unit and it was six on one. Six inmates on one inmate. In an assault. In an assault. So the first two people in were women. I heard over the radio, I heard this officer calling for help. Mm -hmm. So I rushed over there. Now, while these inmates were kicking and continuing the assault, she managed to get a cuff on one wrist of the inmate, but couldn't get the cuff on his other hand. So she was you know, steadfast holding that cuff that wasn't linked up yet. Right. And in come a male officer and stood over the inmate on the ground, stood over the inmate on the ground while she's flailing, trying for dear life to not let go of this cuff that's going to become a weapon. Any second. Any second.
0: And why do you think he's doing that?
1: And he stands over the inmate, just new, Hmm. inexperienced,
0: free to get involved, maybe. Yeah,
1: not sure. Just clueless, clueless. And then two inmates. And that's why I say that's why sometimes how I talk to them, I'm always conscious, like, hey, Mm -hmm. you piece of shit, get over here. I don't talk to them like that any more than I would talk to my family member like that. Mm-hmm. I talk to you as a person. I'm not looking at your card. I don't care what you've done. I'm talking to you as a, pu- as a person when I ask you to do something or when I tell you, you know, come here, do this, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a person to person. I don't respect need to be given, and Respect is given and
0: respect has gotten back from you.
1: Right. right. So while my fellow coworker was struggling, these two inmates who knew me, Mm -hmm. and her helped her grab the guy and bring him to the door and they said sorry miss this is as far as i can go Hmm. and i was at the door i couldn't go in because i'm on the door someone's gotta stay on the door
0: the actual offenders helped restrain this guy and escort him to the door to support the two female the two female officers yeah out of respect more than likely out out of of respect for you
1: out of the respect and the way that we have treated them. Wow. They brought mm-hmm. this inmate to the door for us. Mm-hmm. We got him restrained properly. And she was so angry. She was just, she couldn't even speak. She was so angry with the, the male yeah, officer. officer. Yeah. 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 And I said, I, I said to the, uh, the two inmates that helped her. And I said, you know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And uh, you will be rewarded. And I said to the sergeant, get these guys some chips or pop or whatever from stores. But these two guys just saved the life of an inmate that could be dead. He's half dead on the floor. Not only that, he saved the officers back. Hmm. And I think they deserve at least some chips and pop or whatever you can get them from stores. Right. And they gave us such a hard time.
0: The management uh, absolute, did yeah. for just asking for pop or chips. Yeah. Right.
1: And I said, like, one was, um, mm. I think one was East Indian and the other one was black. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know how hard it is? There's 32 inmates in there.
0: They're going against their own code.
1: And two of them had the balls to step forward and go against and help staff.
0: When your own officer was standing
1: yeah wow yeah and you don't want to give them a bag of chips and it's a
0: it's a good example you're using because it shows humanity it shows that not everybody in there is an animal right and people Mm -hmm. are human beings and people have addiction issues people suffer with mental health people
2: Mm -hmm. have family
0: issues i mean obviously people have committed crimes to be in there um so they're there you can't you know you can't knock that you obviously have to have to be realistic there's very dangerous Mm -hmm. offenders of course but generally speaking, a huge portion of the population are people that are only human at the end of the day, too. You know, and a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of um, different type of crimes, right? And not everything is an indictable offense. Not everything is the murderers, the rapists, and all that stuff. A lot of it is all types of people in general population, right? All types and that's, of
1: people. And that's the thing, like you say, there's addiction and stuff, and that's where you, I can use my influence to go above. So. A bag of chips in a pop, Yeah, that's something. But there's also something else I can do, which nobody else would have thought to do. And it's like, I, I'm going to call the classification because this guy was sent in, um, classified to go up to some BF Idaho. Right? He's brown. He's from Scarborough. They're going to send him to BF Idaho where he'll have no visitors. They ain't taking a bus up there. He's going to be isolated. Right. And I guarantee there won't be many of his kind up there.
0: Right. So the very said, least me- you can do is basically put in a good word for his behavior so said, Let me- to support him. Let
1: me- yeah. yeah. So I called my classification lady and I said, listen, this is what this, this is the situation. I need you to make some changes. Is there anywhere, any possibility that he can go somewhere closer? There has to be, even if he has to wait. I know we're full. I mm-hmm. know you want to ship everybody out that you can, but think about it.
0: What's right? the I general, know. what's the general impression of correctional staff when you are the way you are, when you show a little bit of compassion, humanity, kindness, when you're firm, but fair, what, what, what would you say? Is it, is it a very difficult culture to do that?
1: It It depends. Hmm. You, you get too extremely those that know me and it's like, yeah, you would do that. Or yeah, I can see why you did that. And yeah, you can get away with that.
0: But you also have the officers that see everybody as a criminal, as
1: somebody that's not right. worth any time as not human. Yeah. Right. And the way they talk to them and they wouldn't do that right? because they don't, they don't know the history.
0: Right. So I want to ask you some, Carmen, Um, in terms of trauma in corrections, uh, because I know there's something that you are passionate about. I know you've likely seen a lot, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of difficult things, but what do you think the level of trauma in corrections today is?
1: A lot of overdoses, a lot of hangings, um, and recent too. We've had lots recent overdoses. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of staff on, on leave Mm, or operational stress injuries. It they're just not equipped mm-hmm. the way I mean when I started it was like suck it up buttercup mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't know what PTSD was and you certainly didn't know that you had it that's right but nowadays you know I can look across the room and I could pick oh that one that oh good you know and that and that's you know, I don't know how I've survived over the years, but I can say, come talk to me. Right. And I, that's why I said I have a few right now that I've that I'm I want to see them through. And I need to see them through. Yeah.
0: I think because you've probably the- built up a shield yeah. or built up something because it, it's really inside who you are as a person. Like that story that you share about being that little girl that's lost and stuff. It all stems from there. Right. It's mm-hmm. you wanting to protect not just the offenders and not just the public, but now it's, it's become your mission to protect the other people that are traumatized, that are abused at work. It, you've made this more of a calling than just a job.
1: And I mean, like after so many years, like I've been with victim services with the OPP for since 2013. Mm-hmm. And like my focus with them is the first responders. So I've been working with badge of life and boots on the ground. Very cool. And the uh, Association of Traumatic Stress Specialists. So there's a team of specialists that I can send people to. And we meet every month, every couple of months. And they said, when I joined, they said, oh, my God, like corrections has been the last first responder group to open up. They have been the hardest group to get in involved first of all to admit Hmm. that they're the trauma levels that exist yet we have the highest suicide rate
0: from any profession i believe of all first responders of all all
1: first responders yeah of all first responders corrections has the highest suicide number of successful suicides and i was uh, that that was like so basically these organizations
0: that. are saying that corrections is the last one to finally get on board and admit that we do have an issue here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's when I said, you know what, this is going to be my focus.
0: It, in your it's opinion, do you think that corrections care. is doing enough to actually help help people that are traumatized, that are, that are in these positions?
1: Dealing not, with without, not without constant prodding. Hmm. So you had an incident, you had like, we had six, seven overdoses go down at once, seven in one unit, oh, seven, wow. one died. But the stress in that situation was not enough. Like they had nurses, you had a couple of nurses working on each, you had staff, they were screaming for naloxone kits. Like you've got seven down
0: at the same time, same day, at or- the
1: same time, at the ex- same time. So you call a medical alert and it's like, we need more staff. We need more naloxone. Oh. And each of those seven, two to three shots of naloxone. Well, one kit has two shots in it. Right. So it's like, you're on a unit. Well, they don't have a dozen naloxone kits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it was, there was sheer panic. Among the staff, because it was like, I need another, I need another shot. And somebody get me in a lock zone. Somebody has got to stay on the floor with the dying inmate. Somebody has got to run for the lock zone. Where do we get it? Like there was just chaos.
0: Chaos in that situation. Now, you know, the thing I find is that in corrections, when it comes to recruiters and getting into this profession, You don't realize what you're getting yourself into for one, right? But also none of the negative, the challenging, the very traumatic things are ever talked about. It's very much like, oh, it's a government job. It's pretty good pay. You can make a lot on overtime. You get a badge, Mm -hmm. you know, you're this and this, you can move into these roles, sign up. (laughs) But nobody talks about these things, you know, the suicide rates, the overdoses, the trauma, the mental health, Mm -hmm. the sick leaves, the politics, the racism, and all this stuff. I mean, that's that's really what my intention is of talking about the good and bad, the pros and cons of of everything in this podcast okay. to educate the public and educate new people coming in. But like it just blows my mind when I'm listening to you talk about it because most people will never know what that's like. Seven people overdosing at the same time, rushing mm-hmm. to these scenarios, what it does to your mental health. Like it might not affect you that day,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but maybe sometimes, and it's more than more than often the case with PTSD is something very traumatic will happen over and over and over. And then something very Mm -hmm. small will set you off and it'll be like the thing that set you over the edge. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's just, people can't imagine the things that you're dealing with. Right.
1: And that's, and that's why I say like the management side has to change as well. So on this, on this um, overdose, it wasn't even three months so one of the officers, black female, was involved with a successful hanging. Okay. So she was in a complete fog, came out of the situation, went into the module and called me from her mm-hmm. cell phone. Okay. You know, they frown upon having your cell phone on while you're on duty. Okay. So she called me from her cell phone. She was in a module. She fell apart. Oh, wow. So I said, that, I said, here's what you got to do pull yourself together, get your reports done. Just focus, get your reports done. And I said, and then you go into the duty office and you ask him for a package, a WSIB package. Okay, I want you to fill out a package. So she went into the duty office, asked for a package and your typical white old school, what? Right. What do you want that for? You don't oh. look hurt. And she broke down. She called me back. He won't give me one. I got.
0: The employer won't even give her the actual application would, would for a WSWE
1: incident. Would not give her one. So I called him up. I sent her back in there. And there was another girl with her who would not. Would not. So I said, get two. Because you need to give this other lady one. And then to, talk, to add insult to injury, um, she had called me the next day because she said there's several messages. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't go in. She goes, I haven't even jumped in the shower yet. They haven't answered the phone. They're phoning and phoning. She's reassigned to the exact same unit. The next day.
0: You know, and for the people listening, I just want them to understand, like, this is the stuff that's the real stuff, right? Because I want to give credit to correctional officers and corrections as a whole. It's a profession I still respect, you know, I'm I'm out of it obviously now, but it's something that I still, it's always going to be with you. You can't just leave it, right? It's always okay. something that that you've done, you've experienced, it's part of you, it changes you. I think it fundamentally changes people. And, you know, when you're looking at trauma, this is the stuff that you deal with, maybe not every day, mm-hmm. but- it happens and you're always on edge every single day. And when you're talking about adding racism, human rights violations, mm-hmm. and a general poison work environment, how much more does that aggravate the actual trauma itself, too? You know, just compounds to I said. it.
1: You know, you, you're a Black female and you walk in to someone that you should respect and expect to have your back. And this is the treatment you get. Wow
0: very challenging it's not it's not all that easy and i just wish that recruiters would actually do their job and tell them tell mm-hmm. newcomers like this is what you're going to encounter but mm-hmm. i really think that people are, like you said people are being failed and and, and I'm, I'm getting that from my personal experiences with talking to so many staff that have ptsd and trauma and feeling so let down by management in general feeling let down by the mm-hmm. system and you're just seeing like there's a lot a lot of hurt a lot of trauma you know and and it's still it's a, a
1: box it, it, to some people it's still a box Do you need system? Yeah. It's a boxy check checkbox. That's all. There's no care there. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. I need system. Yes. I'm traumatized. Who's going to take
0: care. Who's going to be there for you and check in on you when you're actually off on a leave.
1: Right.
0: Nobody. Right. Yeah. Do staff overall feel that management is there to support them or has, has their best interest in mind? Or is there like a level of distrust and tension there?
1: Lots of distrust, lots of novice managers. Just put mm. the stripes on just for that extra $0.10 cents an hour. Mm. It's all about them. I want that extra $0.10. Cents. I want to be able to order people around. Right. There, there's nothing that says, I care about you and your safety and your well-being.
0: So staff don't feel that? No. No. In general, no. speaking, you know, we're general, generally speaking about it from our own experiences here. I've been out of mm-hmm. it for five years. So I just wanted to know, like, has anything mm-hmm. changed? Is it still that level of tension from management to officers? And I just want to know, is there still that tension is, or is it any better?
1: No better. No better.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think the role of the union is in all of this? Like, how, how do you see the union personally? Do you think like that they said- the help or do you think that it's kind of like almost creates more divide and more tension?
1: I keep going back to that same phrase. Mm. Do you buy a dog and bark yourself? Mm-hmm. That's so exactly not, what I think. So when not you, as helpful as what you need. You, you pay your dues, right. you buy your dog, you pay your dues. And when you need something, silence, mm. silence.
0: Carmen, okay. in, if, if there's one way you can describe the state of corrections today, like right now, as you're leaving this field, like, you know, in the next couple of years, or I'm not entirely sure how long you're going to plan on being there, but what's the best way to describe the entire situation? Like the issues with staff, the issues with the management, the subculture in its entirety, the work environment, the job expectations that they've put on people. How would you describe where it is today?
1: If I had to choose corrections again, starting now, I would not.
0: You would not choose it. As a career. I would
1: not use it as a career. Seeing the way it is and the way it started, I would not, in, without a second thought, mm. if I saw what it is today compared to what it was 35 years ago, I would not choose it today.
0: So even though there was the racial tension and the discrimination, and everything else, there's aspects of it that have just become that much more, Unappealing. Unappealing and things have just gotten worse. Yeah. Even though on paper, Mm -hmm. it looks like things are better.
1: Yeah. Both of my kids, one is 25. The other one will be 24 next month. Both of them were looking at my career. And I said, absolutely not. Wow. Okay. Absolutely not. I wouldn't even bring my daughter to take your kids to work day. Mm Mm-hmm. I said, no, you don't even need to come in and see it because it ain't for you.
0: And I'm guessing that's why you're speaking out as well because you want people to know the reality of what's actually going on and things to mm-hmm. change for the next generation, yeah. right? After you retire. Because
1: lots of people have their kids there and it's like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I, I, I did the right thing. Discouraging mine.
0: See, I see you as somebody who's speaking out because you want your experiences and your pain and suffering to not just be in vain, right?
1: You right. want to share
0: your story to try and advocate for change. Mm-hmm. So I... The, what I understand, what I've what I've been able to gather from you is that pretty much trying to leave behind a legacy before you retire—that's something that's important to you. Um, I, I've I've figured that out about you since the first time that we spoke. And you're really not afraid to speak your mind, which is something I really appreciate as well.
1: And it's it, it, some people like to sugarcoat it, but it's like, how can I get across to you what really happened if I don't use absolutely the language that was
0: spoken? I actually had my ODSP manager that. I was talking to about racism issues and what I experienced in corrections. And he said, you know what? And I was very, very impressed and very surprised that he said this, but he said, this is the kind of stuff that you cannot sugarcoat. You have to call it out and say exactly what it is. You know? And I thought to myself, man, if, if only corrections management actually said that and allowed us to talk and have these conversations. Yeah. So before we wrap it up, I got three last questions for you. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay, number one, if corrections senior managers are listening to this or the minister, higher ups, as well as the entire province, what would you have to say to them directly or anyone invested in change in this correctional system? What would you say to them overall? What do you really want to say that you wanted to say all these years um, that you've kind of kept silent and kept to yourself? You've never got a chance to actually say it to senior administration running the ministry.
1: They spend millions of dollars, millions, I'm sure no you don't have to be a financial expert to know how much money is spent putting these policies out there and pff, i don't see the value okay you spend millions of dollars to put this
0: in effective programs
1: into in effect like let's have this w what, what do you call it wdhp how much did that program Cost to get up and running and written to the books and the policies,
0: which has been a complete failure,
1: and it has been a complete failure, not to mention the cost. What has that costed?
0: Mm-hmm. You know
1: what it's costed? My Millions dignity, in, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, at so the hands of taxpayers. Taxpayers are basically paying for your abuse, and I don't think people understand how that works because it's not private institutions, they're all public. We're public servants. So everything being funded in jails, including our salaries, are all based on public tax paying dollars. So when people are off on sick leaves, when people are putting in grievances, human rights complaints, all of that, the lawyers, the hotel rooms, the travel, the the money that the government's using to actually push back and fight these people that are trying to report these things, or in your case, like this WDHP, this investigation that took a year, all of that is tax Mm -hmm. dollars being spent. So you're basically being abused at the expense of taxpayers, mm-hmm. but they just don't know
1: it. So and and that's just thing. Clarity, or what? What do they say? They they adver- advertise transparency. Yes, transparency to who? The public has no friggin' idea. None of the dollars you're spending, their dollars, their money that you're spending on this bullshit
0: and on people coming forward to actually report things too. Yeah. Forcing them to have to go through court processes and hearings and tribunals just to get any kind of, like you said, justice or a portion of their dignity back. Mm-hmm. And Oftentimes a lot of people are just trying to, to, to make people know that this is what's going on. Like as was the case in the Michael McKinnon case that took 23 years and it was estimated that 30 to $50 million was spent on that from the government. To just fight him. Wow. 30 to $50 million. Question number two I have for you. Since you were retiring shortly, I don't know exactly when, from corrections. How do you want to be remembered, Carmen? What are you most proud of? What accomplishment or characteristics about what you have been able to accomplish during all these years are you most proud of?
1: I feel like I'm... How do I say it? It did not... All the years did not make me someone I don't want to be.
0: It didn't change you in a negative. Right. Right. You stayed true to your character, to who you are. Right. Gotcha.
1: I came in who I am and I stayed who I am.
0: That is damn hard for 36 years.
1: I just, you cannot compromise what you stand for. For anything. Mm.
0: Absolutely. And who you are as a person. Mm values. But it is damn hard to do that in this environment.
1: You know, like a couple days in the door, you want to fit in. You want to be the cool group. Right. You want to be, but it doesn't take long to know that "Mm, that's not me. Right. I can't do those things and hold my head high. I can't eat with that mouth using that. Terminology. The derogatory, the racial slurs and everything. Right. Like that. I will choke on my food. I'm not going to talk that way because they do it. I will talk in a manner where the inmate understands me. If I have to drop the F bomb, I'll do that. But it does not have to be derogatory, derogatory yeah. to get through to them.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and you don't take pride in knowing that you're earning a paycheck. You almost feel dirty becoming an officer like that and fitting in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt as well. So my last question for you, Carmen, is: What message do you have for new graduates, those who are often completely unprepared by the ministry and coming into these hostile positions that are very challenging, very political, as we discussed, very abusive workplaces at times? What do you have to say to these people? Those young people of color, those women, those with good intentions coming in in high hopes. What advice would you give to them? And what do you think they need to do in order to be a part of the change in the future?
1: The big thing coming in is find your place, find your tribe, scope out who you can go to, to lead you in the right direction. Mm. So it's like you observe, watch and learn, watch and learn, watch everybody you can and find out who you follow, Mm -hmm. who you go to who you can open up to. I can count on one hand, the number of friends I have outside of that jail. Dogs don't shit where they eat. Right. You come in here, you work and you have a life outside.
0: Yes. That's very important.
1: Keep one hand, one hand. You keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So you figure out who inside is your friend, your confidant, supporter who's got your back and I said you probably won't find more than a handful Right. but that's who you find and you find okay if I ever need to talk to someone this went down what should I do you exchange numbers and that person is your tribe
0: 24-7 would you recommend that if they see wrongdoing do they report it
1: I would say absolutely and make sure makes absolutely sure you saw what you saw.
0: It's it's there. There's definitely a lot of issues, a lot of issues and corrections. I, I honestly, I just want to, I just to wrap it up. I just want to thank you so much, Carmen. Honestly, like it paints a picture. It gives us a lot of, a lot of different perspectives from different areas. I mean, we can go on and on. And especially if we did a panel or something with so many different staff, we'd be talking about different stories, but we just have to be mindful of the public, the general public doesn't understand a lot of what we're talking about because we use a lot of slang and different things that we don't even realize. But I want to tell you that I just admire you so much, so much as a person um, for speaking up, not once, but multiple times now on these platforms. I'm very honored to know you. I really, really, truly mean that. I appreciate bravery in somebody. I appreciate transparency, real transparency. I appreciate real talks like this. And I think so does the general public that's listening in on this. And this is very rare, like hearing it directly from staff from the inside, staff who typically are very afraid to speak out. But if nobody has told you this, I personally want to. I just want to thank you for the decades of public service that you've contributed, um, serving the public, keeping people safe working as a Black woman, paving the way for you know, new Black women, new minority staff in a field that was predominantly white males. Like I can't even begin to imagine everything you've gone through back then. Um, thank you for serving the community, helping offenders, keeping people safe, responding to the crazy things that you've responded to that the public can only imagine, dealing with so much trauma, dealing with death, overdoses. Um, this off the top of my head here, mental health, fires, hangings, coming back day in, day out to do it all over again. On top of that, dealing with the fact that your own people are telling you that due to the color of your skin, you don't belong there and using racial slurs. But you know what, Carmen, like despite all of that, you came back for 30 plus years, 36 years and gave back to the public. You gave back to your government, to your correctional facility, the same one that lay you down and gave you no justice. So I just want to tell you on behalf of Canadians, thank you for your service. Thank you for everything you've done.
1: It's been an honor
0: honestly thank you for sharing your story it's been an incredible story um and you're very very genuine in it and very open about it and i just wish you a very happy and healthy retirement when you do decide to retire i wish you nothing but the best as you get to now live out your best life in the next couple of years
1: and uh, yeah. i'm looking forward to following your your cast your podcasts
0: thank you so much carmen what do you think will happen with this podcast where do you see it going or what what would your hope for this be
1: I think you're the champion on this one. Um, all that you've gone through to make this happen, make this platform, and allow people to come out. Yeah. You know, exactly. I, I can only imagine the number of people that are on the edge of their seat. Should I talk to them? Should I say, I've, I've talked to several people and I've urged them tell your story. Like this right. is a story he has not heard. I guarantee tell your story. I've passed on your information, but I, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make yep. him drink.
0: Yeah. I think I'm the more the people that. come forward, it, it'll, it'll change things. It'll change perspectives and people will start speaking out and, yeah, you know, they'll realize that we're not here to, you know, do damage to the ministry or anything like that. The damage has already been done to the staff to the offenders, to people. And it's not about that. It's just about education, inspiring people for change, inspiring the next generation and just really calling it out, talking about it because the system that we have in place is currently ineffective,
1: broken, broken. very broken. And And we have to do it from the outside and we all need to do, you know what I mean? We can't do it without everybody.
0: Yeah. But it does say something about staff being so afraid of reprisals and so afraid of speaking Mm -hmm. out. Yeah, that even though they have a duty to actually report these things to the public and to management, they still can't come forward and still so afraid
1: because there is still a way that they can be, as you put it, black marked mm-hmm. and stunted in their career. And yeah. that and that and that fears people. You know, and that should never that, be like that. You know, what do I do without this job? I, I've got mouths to feed. Right. You know, there's too much at stake that it's not just a job, it's a, it's a lifeline. Right. So, you know, without this, I don't think people would be talking.
0: And that concludes the last part of Carmen's interview with me. Although it was a lengthy interview, it gave us amazing perspective. She provided perspective on speaking about her own experiences of racism in her workplace to abuse towards her colleagues and offenders, how things have changed over 36 years, where things stand today, and just how challenging and traumatic the job can be for many staff. Very interesting perspectives that shed light on many different components of corrections. We wish Carmen well in the end of her career, and I thank her so much for her courage to speak her truth to all of us in the public. Thank you for listening, thank you for supporting, and please make sure to follow duty to report on Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And you can always feel free to connect with me through TikTok, Instagram, Twitter directly, or through the Gmail account I've set up for duty to report All that information will be listed on the write-up of this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and a new episode will be launched again shortly.